Good morning, everyone. My name is Michael Godshall, and it's an honor to open God's Word with you today. Um, For those of you who don't know me, uh, you may know my wife, lovely wife Hallie, my three boys, Michael, Luke, and Eli, uh, who are usually running around after church wrestling your children. Um, Sorry about that. Uh, We've been in a teaching series uh, as a church in the book of Matthew. And today we're going to look at two stories of people who struggled to believe in Jesus when he did not meet their expectations. They were at risk of being offended by him. Have you ever been offended by Jesus? I have. A number of years ago, I became so offended by Jesus that I began to drift into areas of unbelief in my life. Back in 2015, Hallie uh, had just given birth to our middle son and found herself in an extremely difficult postpartum season. Uh, we started, uh, what started as seemingly small physical issues grew and compounded, leading to mental, emotional, and spiritual attacks. We had never faced a battle like this before. I entered this season with strong faith in Jesus, praying for Hallie's healing and trusting that he would eventually deliver us from the trial. But progress was met with setbacks. And as one issue resolved, another would pop up. And not only that, but my boys began struggling with persistent health issues as well. Whenever we got sick, we really got sick. Um, It was like a twisted game of whack-a-mole. You know the game where the mole would pop up and you'd hit it with a mallet and then two more would pop up next to it. That was what our life was like at at our house with, with sickness. And to top things off, I began to struggle greatly with insomnia. It didn't take long before my faith wore down in this environment. Unbelief crept in. My prayer life dried up. My heart became hard. I was frustrated and angry. I was offended that Jesus wasn't showing up in the ways that I, uh, the ways and the timing that I was expecting him to. So I stopped coming to him. I stopped believing that he was working in the midst of our mess. It was easier to stop expecting him to work than to deal with the disappointment. I wonder if there are any here today who can relate to our journey, who, who prayed for healing that never came, who prayed for a loved one who is yet to come to Jesus, who are still waiting for a breakthrough and perhaps struggling to trust. My prayer is that you find encouragement today through God's word. Before we dive into today's story, it's important to understand where we're at in Matthew right now. Uh, This is going to be a a lot of context, but stay with me. It will help us to understand today's passages. So in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, there's an emphasis on the teachings of Jesus. And in 8 through 10, there's an emphasis on the miracles or the mighty works of Jesus. And in chapters 11 through 13, there's an emphasis on how people are responding to Jesus. Um, Most recently, we've been looking at the parables. In chapter 13, uh, we've been exploring Jesus' parables about the kingdom of God. Uh, Last week, Dave uh, taught on the hidden treasure and the pearl of great value. And these parables show us that in order to follow Jesus and enter into his kingdom, we must pursue 
him as our greatest treasure. Then we have parables of the sower and weeds, where we see that not everyone will respond positively to Jesus and his kingdom. And we see that there is an enemy who is actively opposing him. We have the parables of the mustard seed and the yeast. Uh, We see that God's kingdom will keep advancing and growing in the face of rejection and opposition. So along with the parables, Matthew also gives us examples of people who are responding to Jesus. Uh, Some of the people believed that he was the Messiah. Other people uh, rejected his message of repentance, even though they had witnessed his mighty works. The Pharisees or the religious elite, uh, they accused Jesus of working with Satan and leading the people astray. They said, it is only by the prince of demons that he casts out demons. We also see that Jesus did not meet John the Baptist's expectations of what the Messiah would look like. In chapter 4, Matthew tells us that John had been arrested right as Jesus was beginning his ministry in Galilee. But he didn't provide any details at the time. We're going to get into some of those details today. But his days in prison turn into weeks, and his weeks turn into months, and his months and turn into an entire year. John and his disciples were becoming increasingly uncertain about the Messiah they had professed. So they asked Jesus, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus wasn't meeting John's expectations. You're not the victorious Messiah that I was expecting. Where's the freedom from Israel's oppressors that the prophets promise? Where's the judgment of the unrighteous? Where's the baptism of fire that I preached about? Where's the kingdom? Jesus answers John, not by rebuking his uncertainty, but by bringing his expectations into alignment with how God's kingdom was breaking through on the earth at that time. Jesus points John to his mighty works that demonstrated the inbreaking of God's kingdom, saying, go and tell John what you hear and see. Notice the tangible nature of God's kingdom. It's certainly spiritual, but you can also hear it and you can see it. When the blind receive their sight, God's kingdom is upon you. When the lame walk, the leopards are cleansed. Or sorry, the lame, when the lame walk, when the leopards are cleansed, when the deaf hear, when the dead are raised up, when the poor have good news preached to them, whenever you see these things, God's kingdom is advancing, God's kingdom is growing and expanding. Here we see that Jesus is highlighting the blessings that the kingdom of God was beginning to bring in the people's lives. The blessings that prophets like Isaiah had promised the Messiah would bring. But these mighty works were were just a foretaste, a preview of the fullness of the kingdom that was yet to come. You see, when Jesus delivers a person from uh, who are being oppressed by demons, we get a preview of the day that is coming when Satan will ultimately be defeated. When Jesus heals a person of sickness, we get a preview of the day that is coming when sickness will be no more. When Jesus raises someone from the dead, we get a preview of the day when the dead will be raised to life and receive new glorified bodies. So Jesus highlights the promised blessings the Messiah would bring, but he intentionally leaves out the promised judgments that John and his disciples were expecting of him. In other words, the fullness of the kingdom would have to wait. 
Jesus was inaugurating or establishing his kingdom on the earth, but this was just the beginning. That is why it is often said that God's kingdom is here, but it is also coming. God's kingdom is now, but it is also not yet. This would have been hard news for John to hear as he sat in prison. While his expectations of the Messiah and God's kingdom were not wrong, God had a different plan for the fulfillment of their timing, or the timing of their fulfillment, excuse me. Anticipating this, Jesus concludes his response to John by saying, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In other words, it's like Jesus is saying, blessed is the one who continues to believe in me even when I don't immediately meet their expectations and they feel deeply disappointed. This idea of being offended by Jesus is going to come into focus again in today's passage as we conclude this block of teaching that started with John the Baptist in chapter 11. You see, Matthew likes to bookend his blocks of teaching to provide literary structure and to emphasize important, uh, uh, or important themes in his gospel. In uh, Matthew chapter 4, Matthew introduces his ministry strategy. He says that he went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and affliction among the people. And then later in Matthew 9, he repeats the same idea. He says, and Jesus went through all the cities and villages, doing what? Teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. So Matthew does the same thing here in chapters 11 to 13. He starts this section with John the Baptist, questioning Jesus and encouraging him to believe and not to be offended. And he concludes this section by returning to John the Baptist and emphasizing a story where where, uh, people took offense with Jesus and rejected him. So that was a lot of context. Uh, but I think it will help us to better understand today's passages. So go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. We're going to be in, start in verse 53. If you don't have Bibles, there should be plenty of uh, black Bibles around the room in the seat next to you, and you can find today's passage on page 769. So once again, Matthew chapter 13, verse 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters here with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Although Matthew doesn't explicitly say it here, um, it is understood that Nazareth was considered Jesus' hometown since that is where uh, Jesus' family settled and grew up. 
Nazareth was a humble agricultural town. It was probably less than 500 people at the time of Jesus. It was an overlooked town, not the kind of place where people expected the Messiah to come from. One of Jesus' disciples would later emphasize this point by saying, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Once Jesus' family settled in Nazareth, the scriptures don't provide us a lot of details about uh, what life looked like for Jesus as a young boy or as a teenager or a young man. The only story we have is of Jesus as a 12-year-old boy in the temple courts where he demonstrated a unique love for God as his father in his growing wisdom. But um, But our passage today gives us incredible insight into the first 30 years of Jesus' life. Those who grew up with him, those who were closest to him, saw him as an ordinary human being. Although he was the son of God, Jesus must have lived a surprisingly ordinary life amongst those who were closest to him. He lived as one of them, he worked as one of them, and he experienced the joys and struggles of life as one of them. If you think about it, their questions were quite reasonable. They had grown up with Jesus for 30 years and thought they knew him. He didn't have any special training. He's just the carpenter's son. He didn't have any special lineage. His family is full of ordinary people, just like us. From their perspective, he was just an ordinary man from an ordinary family with an ordinary job from a less than ordinary town. He was one of them. There was nothing from the first 30 years of his life that explained what they were now witnessing. Notice that Jesus says, a prophet is not without honor in his hometown and in his own household. It wasn't just his neighbors that were rejecting him. It was members from his own family. The Gospel of John says says specifically that even his brothers did not believe him. And in the Gospel of Mark, it says at one point, his family tried to restrain him because they thought he was out of his mind. They thought he was crazy. A well-known theologian, Wayne Grudem, summarizes it like this. The people who knew Jesus best, the neighbors whom he had lived and worked for 30 years, saw him as no more than an ordinary man. A good man, no doubt, fair and kind and truthful, but certainly not a prophet of God who could work miracles and certainly not God himself in the flesh. He was so fully human that even those who lived and worked with him for 30 years, even those brothers who grew up in his own household did not realize that he was anything more than another good, very good human being. They apparently had no idea that he was God come in the flesh. So as Christians, we uphold that Jesus is both God and man in human flesh. We call it the incarnation. Jesus, the Son of God, took on human flesh and became fully human while retaining his full divinity. He voluntarily took on a human nature without ceasing to be God. Through his incarnation, Jesus was able to fully identify with us, experiencing the joys and struggles of human life while also remaining sinless and able to offer redemption and reconciliation through his death and resurrection. 
So the humanity of Jesus explains why the people closest to him were so astonished by his wisdom and mighty works. Astonishment by itself uh, was not the problem, though. There are many examples in the Gospels of people who were astonished by Jesus, but they responded positively to them, to him. The real issue here is that they let their astonishment lead to offense at Jesus. This word offense is the same word that Jesus used in chapter 11 in his response to John the Baptist. Remember Matthew's use of bookends. The Greek word is uh, skandalizo. It's referred to, or it's related to the English word scandal. It means stumbling block or obstacle, or as one commentator put it, repelled to the point of abandoning. They were stuck in their expectations of who the Messiah would be. He certainly wouldn't be ordinary. They were stuck in their expectations of where the Messiah would come from. He certainly wouldn't come from Nazareth. Their expectations of Jesus and their expectations of the Messiah were incompatible. Instead of realigning their expectations, they rejected him. Even in the face of powerful evidence, his wisdom and his mighty works. Jesus must have been so devastated. Remember, he has a human nature and experiences emotions just like we do. He had spent most of his life with these people. He knew them personally and intimately. He loved them. He knew their sicknesses. He knew their diseases. He knew their afflictions and injuries. He must have been so excited to set them free of all of their afflictions. He must have been so excited to share with them the good news that he was establishing God's kingdom on the earth. How do we know that he wanted to heal them and that he wanted to share the gospel of the kingdom with them when the text only says that he taught them in their synagogue? Earlier, we looked at Jesus' ministry strategy in Matthew 4 and Matthew chapter 9. Do you remember the three things? He taught them in their synagogue. He proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom, and he healed every disease and every affliction among the people. The phrase, he taught them in their synagogue, seems to be a shorthand way for Matthew to say that Jesus came to his hometown with a mission. He wasn't there on vacation uh, to visit family and old friends like we might do if we were to visit our, our own hometown. He had come to do what he had done in all the other towns in Galilee to teach them in their synagogue and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom and heal every disease and every affliction among the people. His people. So when we hear this phrase, he taught them in their synagogue, we should have all three of these ministries in mind. It's really a tragic story. It's the only place in Matthew where we see Jesus' ministry strategy cut short. The text says, and he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. In the parallel passage in Mark, it says more specifically that he could do no mighty work there except lay his hand on a few sick people and healed them. So why did Jesus heal few but not all? He intended 
to do many mighty works there. He intended to lay his hands on every sick person and heal them. But they responded in a way that somehow stopped him. Their astonishment led to offense. Their offense led to unbelief. And their unbelief led Jesus to not finishing all that he intended to do for them. These verses, especially the passage from Mark, almost make it sound like Jesus was lacking power to heal the sick because of their unbelief. That's not what they're saying. It's not like Jesus was some kind of battery that needed to be charged up by people's faith in order to heal them. The power was always present. Jesus' power did not depend on their faith. His power was not limited by their lack of faith. But as we see throughout Matthew and throughout the Gospels, Jesus delights in sharing his mighty works in response to faith. He delights in healing those who come to him and ask him. Let me show you what I mean with other examples from the book of Matthew. Notice that people are either coming to Jesus or they're bringing others to Jesus. First, we'll look at those coming to Jesus. We're going to go through these quickly. A leopard came to him and knelt before him saying, you can make me clean. And Jesus said, I will be clean. A centurion came forward to him, appealing to him to heal his servant. And Jesus responded saying, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Go, let it be done for you as you believed. A ruler came in and knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died, but come lay your hand on her and she will live. A woman who had suffered 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. Jesus turned to her and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. Now we'll look at those who are bringing others before Jesus. They brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And they sent around all that region, and they brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So how does this relate to Jesus' hometown? Remember, this is a unique situation in Matthew's gospel. We're letting the rest of Matthew tell us what we should be seeing here in Nazareth. What we see is that Jesus had so much more in store for the people of, Is- of Nazareth. He had so much blessing to give to them, like he had all the other towns, but they refused to come to him. They refused to bring others before him. This is what Matthew means by unbelief. This is why Jesus did few mighty works there. He didn't force himself on them. The few that came to him were healed, as the text says. The rest didn't want Jesus to be their healer. And so he stopped healing them. They didn't want Jesus to be their teacher. And so he stopped 
teaching them. And so Jesus gave them what they wanted. Few mighty works. This is a a critical point that we'll revisit in just a little bit. But before we do, we need to resolve a tension that came up earlier. What happened to John the Baptist? Did Jesus' response about the inbreaking of God's kingdom convince John to realign his expectations? Or did he take offense like the people of Nazareth and turn his back on Jesus? Let's briefly take a look at our next passage in Matthew that concludes John's story. Um, And this section of teaching that's been emphasizing how people are responding to Jesus. Remember the bookends. This section started with John the Baptist in chapter 11, and now we'll end with John the Baptist at the beginning of chapter 14. Go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. You'll find it right after the the story of Nazareth that we just read, and we'll go through this one uh, pretty quickly here. And at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work within him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. And he sent and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. So now we know why John was in prison in the first place. God had given John a mission to prepare the way for the Messiah, for Jesus, by announcing the arrival of God's kingdom and by calling the people of Israel to repent. Clearly, John was no respecter of persons. He took risks in order to fulfill the mission God had given him. At one point, when the religious elite were faking their repentance, he calls them a brood of vipers. And here we see that he was even calling out Herod's sin, the ruler of the region. We don't have time today to get into all the details of this passage, but even at a surface-level reading, we clearly see sin at its worst snowballing into the tragic death of one of God's prophets. So although Matthew, or he doesn't explicitly say it, I think Matthew gives us good reason to believe that John did not abandon his faith in the midst of his doubt and suffering. First, Jesus responded to John's disciples in chapter 11, or sorry, after Jesus responded to John's disciples in chapter 11, he immediately defended John to the crowd saying things like, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John. He had the highest praises for John. 
Also, it seems that Matthew intentionally put these stories next to each other to help us see an important contrast. While the people of Nazareth took offense at Jesus and rejected him in the face of overwhelming evidence, John continued to trust Jesus in spite of a lack of evidence, his imprisonment, and ultimately his death. Do you feel the tension between this story um, and the story of Nazareth that we looked at just a bit ago? John longed for more of God's kingdom to break through, but wasn't seeing it. And yet in Nazareth, we see that Jesus longed to bring more of God's kingdom, but they refused to receive it. Through these stories, we see the now of God's kingdom and the not yet of God's kingdom in stark contrast. Let's revisit my story from earlier real quick as it it demonstrates my family's experience with the now and not yet of God's kingdom. As I became more offended by the persistent sickness in our home, my heart grew cold and I started moving further and further away from Jesus. Although I still trusted him as my savior, I stopped believing that he would help us through our trials that his kingdom would break through in our mess. And so I stopped coming to him. I stopped bringing my family before him. I became like the people of Nazareth who refused to come to Jesus. My wife Hallie, on the other hand, was on a totally different path Instead of being offended, her suffering was moving her closer to Jesus. Knowing that I was in a dark place, she began to bring me before him. But she had to persist in prayer for several years before she saw any changes in my life. The Holy Spirit took hold of my heart again in a powerful way. And together we discovered the importance of persevering in prayer. We started coming to Jesus expectantly and persistently about the sickness that had dominated our family for years. But the biggest breakthrough that we experienced was when we began asking other believers to pray for us, to bring us before Jesus just as James chapter 5 instructs us to. And how the persistent sickness is gone. The insomnia is gone. We still get sick every now and then, like everybody else. But it's normal. We recover quickly. I still have bad nights of sleep occasionally, like when I'm preparing for my first sermon but my sleep is normal now. And that's all within the last year that we've seen these changes in our lives. Men at this church laid their hands on me and prayed for me. And while I didn't immediately see changes to my sleep 
a month later, I was free. It, came, it felt like it came out of nowhere. Night after night after night, I was sleeping through the night. Jesus made it very clear that he had healed me. I don't know why I wasn't healed on the spot when they prayed for me. But I believe their prayers were part of my healing journey. We rejoice in the breakthroughs that we've seen this past year, but the reality is that we suffered for seven years before we saw any changes in our lives. And some of you have been suffering even longer than we have with even more serious issues in, their own, in your own lives or more tragic issues that you've faced as a family. We must believe that God has more in store for us and for others. And I'm talking about more than just health issues here. I'm talking about your loved one's salvation. I'm talking about areas of addiction and bondage. I'm talking about everything in our lives. We must keep coming to him expectantly. We must keep bringing others to him expectantly. Like the people of Nazareth, we respond to Jesus in unbelief when we act like we already know all he intends to do for us. When we let our experiences or our disappointments lead us to believe, lead us in what we believe, rather than believe that our God is still doing great things. The scriptures tell us that God is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think. Let scripture tell you what to expect of God rather than your current circumstances or past experiences. Like John the Baptist, however, we may not see God's kingdom break through in the ways that we want, in the timing that we want, and sometimes even in our lifetime. There's a mystery here. I encourage you this week to read Hebrews chapter 11, the chapter that explores the lives of people of great faith who never experienced the fullness of God's promises in their lifetime. It gives us hope that God is delaying the fullness of his kingdom for people like us. He's delaying it for future generations that are yet to follow Jesus. So God, we thank you for delaying your kingdom so that more people like us can come to you. If you only take one thing from the message today, come to him. Come to him as your savior. Come to him as your healer. Come to him as your provider, as your deliverer, as your comforter. Come to him, come to him, and keep coming to him. And as you keep coming to him, bring others before him, expecting him to do great things. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you that in your humanity, that you understand the pains and the struggles of life. 
For the first 30 years of your life, Lord, you experienced life without miracles and without, you just lived as a normal person. You know what normal life is like in this sinful, broken world. So thank you, God, that you know where we've been. You know our past circumstances, our, our current circumstances. And Jesus, we ask that you would help us in our unbelief, that you would help us to trust you, to seek after you, to come before you, and to bring others before you. God, open our eyes to see, open our hearts to hear, and give us faith, Jesus. Help us to persevere in this world. In your mighty name we pray, Jesus. Amen.